So, uh, hey everybody, thank you for tuning in. Uh, I'm really glad to welcome today uh, Krista Scott Dixon. Uh, did I pronounce your name well, Krista? Yeah, you got it perfectly. Awesome, wonderful. So, um, my guest today is someone that has been requested for a long time. I wanted to get her on for quite a while and finally we managed to get this together. So I'm super excited. And um, my guest today is someone who is an educator on one of, if not the biggest nutritional um, platform and websites of the world, which is Precision Nutrition. Uh, she's responsible for creating uh, the cu curriculum, uh, as far as I know, but uh, she will correct me if I'm not correct on this, uh, with the personal trainer certification um, courses that they have on there. And she's also an expert uh, on uh, kind of changing behavior and uh, managing kind of uh, guiding people through their success journeys uh, when it comes to nutrition and sort of transformation in the fitness realm. So um, I realized that that was a really weird way of phrasing it, but did I get it more or less correct? Yeah, I was actually just sitting here thinking how much I enjoyed that introduction because <laughs> I think you, you captured it so nicely. Oh, great. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I was saying it and I had one of these moments where as I was speaking, I was just thinking like, damn it, you're phrasing this so weirdly, but I'm glad that <laughs> I, I, I managed to get the gist of it. So um, probably a good number of my listeners will be familiar with your work or at least with Precision Nutrition. But for those of uh, the listeners who may not be, could you just give a brief introduction as to who you are and what my listeners should know about you? Yeah, of course. So uh, Precision Nutrition, you, you kind of alluded to this, is the world's largest online nutrition coaching company. So we coach clients in terms of people who want to transform their bodies or get healthier or whatever. And then we also certify coaches. So we've had about 50,000 clients go through to date and about 40,000 coaches who are looking for certification. So we coach people and we coach the coaches. And so my job is to create the materials that allows us to do that. And so uh, I created the Precision Nutrition Coaching Program, the Level 2 certification, and then we have a whole team working on the Level 1 certification. So, and you'll, you'll know it if you see it, like it's a huge textbook and a set of videos, like it's a very uh, involved project. So I can't really claim uh, complete authorship for that, of course, but uh, so that, that's really my role. And so any educational materials um, really go through me at some point or another. And then we have a whole team of people who review and, and that I collaborate with to get their, their expert advice on. Um, and then I also go out and I do talks and workshops and training sessions and, and stuff like that. So really anything to do with education, some way or another, I have my hand in it. Right. So um, for one, how does it... Um how, how does it feel like, which is a very vague question, but how does it feel like to be such a, you know, a critical member and uh, such a critical kind of piece in the machinery of the world's largest nutrition site? And what do you think, I mean, I'm sure you've talked about this uh, within the team, like, what do you think uh, enabled Precision Nutrition to become the world's largest thing in this industry? Well, let me actually answer your second question first, because I think it'll play into the first one. The answer is, I think there, there, there's a conventional answer and an unconventional answer. One of the conventional answers is that we were lucky and or talented and or insightful enough to identify a need and 
figure out how to meet it in a way that was extremely effective. And I can't take credit for any of this. The, the two guys who co-founded the company, John Berardi and Phil Caravaggio, really had the vision on this, maybe even about 15 years ago. It's been a while. I sort of lose track of time. But the two of them got together. And for a long time, it was just them. And I think it was Phil that had the idea that uh, John was coaching and training at the time. And he had the idea that it would be much more efficient for John to do it on the internet. Uh, and to share his materials and his writing on the internet. And at the time, John was a little bit skeptical. I think John maybe thought that the internet was a fad or something like that. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, like, so they didn't, we didn't start out to become what we are today. There was just this idea that could we take this service that is obviously so deeply needed in our society and could we do it better could we be uh, more talented could we be, could we be more awesome could we be more efficient and effective and so those kinds of questions have really shaped the company's work over the years and we've been really obsessed with those questions like okay we have a good thing how can we make it better how can we make it better how can we make it better how can we uh, solve the problem in a way that maybe nobody else has or better than somebody else has so that's how in part how the company has evolved simply by offering a, a commitment to a vastly better business service than most of our competitors. But also the unconventional answer is under the hood, behind behind the curtain, if you will, there is an incredible commitment to building a team culture of people that are not just talented, but are people that you would want to be family and friends with. That uh-huh. there's such an incredibly deep commitment to rethinking how do we work? How do we do work? What are we even doing here? And how does work get done? Uh, who are we as people to each other? And how can we work the most effectively together. So the corporate culture, whenever I describe it to people, people can't believe it because they're like, how does that even work? So for example, we all work remotely. Um, there's no office, there's no PNHQ or anything like that. There's a yeah. handful of folks in Toronto, which you know sort of loosely defines it as the center, but there's no real center. Um, like we, we get together about once a year for what we call a PN gathering, and there's almost no work done. We don't talk about strategy. We don't talk about deliverables. We don't talk about any of that. We get together. We have some drinks. We eat a lot of food. We go surfing. We hang out. We party, basically, um, in a healthy way, eating our greens, of course. <laughs> um, but and, and so people are like, how are you guys getting any work done? But it's exactly because we have organized work this way that we can do our best possible work. We fit people into the roles where they are the most talented, the most excited to be there. And so we don't have bosses because if you're passionate, truly passionate about the role that you're executing, you're going to get out of bed in the morning and be like, yeah, let's do this. You don't, you don't need a boss to tell you to do it. So to to circle back around to your question about how does it feel, it feels amazing. Like every day I wake up and I think, I cannot believe they give me money to work with these people and do this work on, on this team. It's truly um, a company that is committed to helping people in the world and and helping each other. And to me, that's a very, very meaningful project. So it feels awesome. Right. So, yeah, okay. So it seems like uh, when people in movies and whatever inspirational videos say these things like, each time I wake up and I have to pinch myself, is this real? I love every minute of what I do. Oftentimes it sounds bullshit and it's like, okay, come on. Like this is kind of the PR answer. But in your case, it actually seems like this is a real thing. So... Uh, what what do you like if I don't know if you like contemplating this, but uh, do you ever think back like what did actually make this uh, possible for you? It, what, was there an element of serendipity or if I mean, in an, any success, there is an element of serendipity. That's a silly question, of course. But, you know, like if you look at your skill set and look at kind of the pivotal moments and early win, wins in your career, uh, what do you think were some of the big key components to making this possible for yourself? That's a great question. I love the questions that you're asking here. Uh, I, I would say, obviously, there is that huge element of luck, but I, I believe that we make our own luck to some degree. Yeah. And so what made the luck for me 
was that I have always had a very broad set of interests. I've always um, been very, very curious and, and chase lots of rabbits in terms of if something interests me, I will go and I will learn about it. And maybe I'll even take a class in it. Maybe I'll even take a degree in it. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, I was a university professor and, and I quit academia and came to Precision Nutrition. And not only did I have this academic background, but I had started in a much different place than I finished. So I had this, again, broad range of interests, broad range of expertise, um, all the skills that come with being an academic. And so I was able to use all of these skills at some point, and I continue to do so, and I continue to gather new skills. It's been 10 years. And so, I mean, luck comes to people who hustle and make it happen. And I don't just mean push to get things done or try to achieve goals, but make but make yourself lucky, right? If you yeah. have five interests, there's a good chance that you'll find connections in more areas than if you have one interest. I mean, it's almost like a numbers game in a way. So I think for for us as a collective and me personally, having diverse interests and being very curious about the world and always working to learn and improve my skills, it's all paid off because there are very few skills that I have never used. Like it's amazing what comes in handy. When I started my undergrad, I was in fine arts, visual arts and film. And that translates into talking to designers about how should our website look. Uh, It it translates into creating curriculum materials. It translates into even something as stupid as creating nice PowerPoints, right? So you're you're never without, like if you have a skills toolbox, you just make yourself luckier and luckier with every new skill that you add. Yeah, no, absolutely. That That's... um... Yeah, I I find um, you know I, as you were saying that I was just thinking of a lot of stuff in my my own life. Uh, I mean, obviously I haven't achieved any uh, nearly as much success as you have, but even now I can see like how seemingly trivial skills come handy at unexpected spots. But um, so you're someone who is as far as I put together, kind of digging through your work. You're wearing kind of different hats in your work. So you're working as a curriculum creator and an educator. You're also uh, writing your own blog, and I see that you're doing some interviews with people. Um, and also, um, I'm assuming you're still uh, working with people uh, kind of one-on-one, or at least doing consultations. So from all of these things, um, which, I mean, I'm assuming it's hard to choose, but which one brings you the most pleasure kind of day-to-day? Um, you know what I would say is what brings me pleasure is the ability to combine them. Because for me, it's very important to not have just one thing. It's very important for me to have a variety of things. And so it's almost like each one sustains the other. So for example, uh, maybe I'll spend the morning writing and that will be really fun. But after a certain period of time, you want to come out of the cone of silence. <laughs> and then I might have a, an interaction with someone and that feels really productive and good. And it hits the social uh, button, spins those dials for me, right? It gives me that that uh, human engagement and lets me use the human engagement skills. And then maybe I'll work on a team and that'll you know hit the team engagement dials. And so really for me, it's, it's actually the reason I have so many interests and do so many things is because that's what makes me thrive. And everything reinforces everything else. It's like if you're someone who has a really solid fitness habit and you come back after an exercise session, you work much better, right? And so the exercise reinforces your intellectual output, but you wouldn't necessarily want to do intellectual output all the time or exercise all the time. So it's this lovely kind of symbiotic system where everything reinforces and nourishes the whole. Yeah, no, that, that was very well said. Damn, that was that was like poetic almost. Yeah, that was really <laughs> nice. No, seriously, that was really nicely said. Um, so... Uh, you know, precision nutrition. Um, I mean, obviously, now the fitness industry is is huge, and a lot of people are trying are 
trying to make a name for themselves. And as such, there are almost an, an infinite amount of approaches that have emerged, emerged over time to uh, manage people's nutritional habits. And, um, you know, there's everything from the if it fits your macros crowd to whatever extreme diets, you know, ketogenic diets, zero carb diet, vegan diets. And there's also the kind of intuitive eating crowd. And um, I mean, in a very general broad sense, uh, what is kind of the nutritional philosophy that uh, precision nutrition takes on when it comes to I guess, calorie control in general. I know this was a really vague segue or a really lame segue with no transition whatsoever. But, um, I, you know, because calorie control, I would say, is sort of almost like the gravity aspect. What gravity is to physics is what calorie control to some degree is to nutrition. So what is kind of the general approach that precision nutrition takes in, in that front? What would you say? Well, first of all, I love that you compare calorie control, which I would describe as energy balance, mm -hmm. as similar to gravity. Because yes, as I like to tell my clients, nobody's body breaks the laws of physics. Yeah. Uh, it just seems like that. <laughs> because bodies are complex systems, and we don't know all the inputs and all the outputs uh, to any kind of degree of certainty. Even even in a lab, there's still sort of, you know, questions that, that we might have about exactly what is contributing to the inputs and the outputs. Um, so, but energy balance, energy coming in, energy going out, is a thing. It is an irrefutable thing. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, we, we like to take the approach of simultaneously being evidence-based, research-based, reality-based, and being nutritional agnostics in the sense of uh, feeling very open-ended about, okay, listen, um, you know, we don't subscribe to any particular philosophy necessarily. If you want to eat paleo, if you want to eat vegan, if you want to eat in a way that works for you, maybe you have some food intolerances, whatever, maybe you have those food intolerances and you still eat the food that harms yeah. you anyway, you know, that's your jam. But, uh, but what is the evidence? What is the collective bulk of scientific evidence saying? What is the evidence of your body saying? If, if let's say there's a food that everyone thinks is a superfood, let's, let's say spinach, right? Everyone agrees that spinach is good. But what if every time you eat spinach, you break out in hives? Well, the evidence tells us that spinach is not a superfood for you. So we're simultaneously, like I said, evidence-based, reality-based, and nutritionally agnostic, recognizing that there are generally accepted principles and rules of physiology that apply to everyone. So yes, your physiology may have some subtle differences from mine, but you're not like a silica-based life form that eats methane or something like that. Like fundamentally, your cells work more or less the same way as mine. And so that there, are, we can see that there are nutritional principles, uh, so not rules, but more like core themes or, or guidelines that organize successful eating regimens. And we can look at eating regimens and say, okay, this one is more likely to be successful than that one. But we don't impose rules. Um, if people want to ignore energy balance, that's their business, right? We'll say, look, here's, here's what we know, energy in versus energy out, mass gain, mass loss, laws of physics. You can decide whether you want to subscribe to that or not. And for some people, thinking about it that way is not necessarily helpful because that's not really the question that they're trying to answer. So for example, some people might be concerned with food quality and energy balance is not as relevant to them. Um, they might be concerned with how they eat, like eating habits, eating behaviors, energy balance is something they have to figure out later. So it's not necessarily something we always lead with, but at some point we do have to address the reality that it is a thing if you want to maintain, gain, or lose. Yeah. And um, is how you, and, and first of all, like, um, I, I really like how you started this whole thing because that's, 
that's kind of what I, you know, I most of my friends, I would say 99% of my friends that I interact with in real life are not into fitness. They are just people who every once in a while will turn to me with some question like, I don't know, do I have to count calories or something like that? And and I'm always saying that, you know, just know that calories matter. And mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that you have to count them, but just know that they matter. And yes. it's, it's also, you know, like I don't think about gravity to come back to this day to day, but it doesn't mean that if I step out of a balcony, then I will just not splash on yes. the pavement. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. So, um, uh, do you, the way you administer kind of a control over energy balance, is that completely, um, individual? So for, I, I saw some, uh, infographics or not, not even infographics, kind of a, a visual representation of, of portion, portion sizes that I believe that came from precision nutrition. So is that something, for example, that you use in, uh, in your team or is there like a general way that you like to guide people through this or is that completely dependent on the person? Yeah, a lot of it depends on the person. We, we try to keep it as absolutely simple as possible. And so I should say at the outset that we don't generally work with people who need incredibly detailed calorie control. Um, we do work with elite athletes, but that's more like a one-on-one professional service. But most of our clients are people who we call either level one or level two. So they're either just regular people or higher level recreational athletes, none of whom need a, a precise, super detailed calorie control situation. Um, and so one of the ways we can do it is by getting people to simply slow down their eating and eat more mindfully and allow those natural physiological satiety systems to kick in. And so what people find is that they reduce their energy intake just intuitively that way. Uh, Or we'll say, okay, learn your hunger and fullness cues. Uh, Eat only when you're physiologically hungry. Stop when you're just full. So we teach what we call 80% full. That's another way to do it. Some people struggle with that. So there's portion control as well. Hey, listen, here's the size of protein, fats, carbs, or hey, maybe there's a certain size of plate you're used to eating off of. Maybe take a slightly smaller plate. Or when you go to a restaurant, maybe you always get a large size of something. Try getting a medium. So there's there's a range of ways that we teach it that range from fairly intuitive, sensing, feeling, kind of perceiving within yourself, to more structured and systematic. Okay, you know, uh, a cup of juice is this much, a serving of vegetables is that much. So people can kind of locate themselves on the continuum, and they can move along back and forth on the continuum. So for example, I find when I travel, especially if I'm crossing time zones, my appetite gets really weird, and I cannot count on the intuitive approach, which is what I prefer to use. And so then I just go to the structured systematic approach. Okay, I know this is how much I'm supposed to be eating. So people can kind of move back and forth along that continuum as as they like. And if people are a little bit more high level um, and it's a little bit harder for them to lose or gain, we start to get them actively pushing into the discomfort. So if you're someone who wants to get to that exceptional level of leanness, we push them into the zone of being a little bit more hungry, a little bit more often, or even constantly. Whereas if someone wants to gain and gain into those, you know, areas where it would be uncomfortable for them to eat. Yeah. You know what? You have to eat more. You have to get uncomfortable. You have to eat at times when you don't want to eat. So, um, we can, we can do it as gently or as aggressively as people need and are comfortable with or uncomfortable with as the case may be. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and actually, uh, I was going to ask you about this later, but since you brought it up, it might be, uh, I guess handy to just, just bring this up right now. I really loved how in your, um, downloadable ebook when someone goes to your site by the way how do i pronounce this stumptuous or uh, yes stumptuous stumptuous yeah yeah so uh, people can download that ebook there uh, called fuck calories and you were talking about this mindful eating component and slowing down your eating and i talked about this a lot on the podcast how 
this was, I mean, how people sometimes talk about intermittent fasting or if, whatever, if, if it's your macros and things like this, how they talk about that being a revelation for them. This mindful eating component was probably the biggest game changer in the last year, I would say, in my own nutrition. I mean, I always thought that this was some kind of woo-woo that people just like throwing <laughs> around and, you, you know, just, just be in this zen state while you're eating. And it's really just the sheer act of focusing on your food just changed so many things in my own kind of eating behavior and even things that I never would have expected like digestion and uh, gut function. So kind of uh, when you communicate this to people, uh, what what is kind of your general pitch as to like, why is it worth it to eat mindfully and actually sit down and focus on your food while you're eating? Well, I feel like you've made a great argument in favor of it already. But I mean, from a physiological standpoint, the there is this complex orchestration of signals between our brain and our gut. And we need to help it do its job. Um, in, in 2018, we're not in our natural evolutionary environment where these physiological systems evolved, right? And so we we run the risk of having these cues get all out of whack. And especially so, for example, you know, we're surrounded by highly palatable food. So it's very hard to stop eating this stuff. Whereas if you're living in some kind of ancestral situation where you're eating, I don't know, like armadillo liver and, and dried tubers or something like that, it's not like anyone lies in bed at night and is like, oh man, I could totally go for some of those dried tubers right now. Like, it's just not like that. We don't crave that. So, um, so, you know, a lot of these systems need extra time and attention to work properly. And they do work. I mean, this is the thing people often say, oh, I can't trust my body and it's against me. And I'm like, no, no, no. Look, these systems have evolved over millions of years. They do work. We just have to help them do their job in 2018. And so when we slow down at every stage of the process of, of ingestion and digestion, the systems work better. So for example, if I slow down and even smell my food as I'm chewing it or before I eat it, now the olfactory system is getting cues, whether that's olfaction from outside the body or retronasal olfaction. So as I'm chewing, I'm releasing these volatile compounds that are traveling up the back of my throat into my nasal passages. And they signal to the brain, oh, hey, there's food in here. And then the brain is like, oh, okay, let me send some signals down to the gut. The gut's like, ooh, better secrete some enzymes. So when we slow down, we allow these physiological systems to do their job better. Uh, and so, of course, you have these payoffs, not just in satisfaction and self-awareness, but in digestion. It just feels better to eat. And you also eat better intuitively because we sometimes get our clients to eat, quote unquote, junk food slowly. And when you do that, a lot of the times you're like, this is actually not very good. Like you might be eating a, a corn chip or something and you're like, when I slow down, this just tastes like salty cardboard or greasy, salty cardboard. Like it's not deeply enjoyable in the way that I'd hoped. So a lot of highly palatable food depends on you eating it quickly to get the enjoyment. So you intuitively start to choose a lot of better choices sometimes. So that's kind of nice. But you know, the other piece about mindful eating is about your life. And when you slow down and take a breath and pause and look around and, and look at your life and what's happening around you, it also improves your life because all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm at dinner with people or uh, I'm you know, in this situation able to gather information about myself that I hadn't realized, I hadn't thought about. So it really has benefits everywhere from the most crude physiological functions all the way up to the most existential spiritual self-actualization functions it's kind of a win on on every level yeah yeah exactly and um it's uh you know the the word i i, I do use sometimes when i talk about the act of eating without counting macros or calories 
I do use kind of the brand name or the commercial name, intuitive eating, even though I don't like that term because it it, it implies things that are not really what I'm I'm advocating when I'm talking about this. But you know, like um, just nowadays when I'm eating something which is like really of course, incredibly delicious and intense in flavor, some sort of a, a treat, like a piece of cake, piece of whatever, um, incredibly delicious cheese cake concoction, whatever. I don't even know the names that they give these things these days. And I don't know, I'm just mi- missing the, like that real food-ness from it. You know, I'm missing the protein, I'm missing the textures that accompany kind of real food. And it may be just the kind of a bullshit thing that I'm saying to myself to make it more acceptable that I don't regularly eat those things. But I guess... In that sense, some intuitiveness comes into it, if you will. Um, but at the same time, yeah, like um, I had the same experience that, that you said about mindfulness, that when I learned to actually pay attention to my meals, it just improved other areas that I wouldn't have expected, like being more present even in, in conversations when I would have noticed that I was about to you know, tune out and kind of uh, just wonder in my thoughts. I was just more able to stay present. And... Um, the other thing I wanted to, to uh, say about this is that, uh, you know, just I, I remember seeing a comment from someone that um, was akin to or along the lines of, you know, I just prefer to track my macros. I don't I don't want to try to eat, quote unquote, intuitively, because I can't even imagine asking myself after every single bite if I'm still hungry. And I was just thinking like, yeah, I believe that this is how it seems like to you after tracking for so long, but it's actually nothing magical. You just kind of have to step out of your body's way and let it doing its thing. So it's really not that magical. Um, Now, kind of to transition into another thing I wanted to ask you about is um, how do you generally think about habit change and uh, ingraining habits in uh, people? First of all, let's just start kind of with a general question. Do you subscribe to the whole you know, how is the general habit loop described? Like uh, Q, uh, routine, reward, kind of that's the general loop that's described with habit formation. Do you think along the same lines or uh, do you think that's kind of uh, outdated? What do you think about this? No, I think, I mean, I I think if we pull back, there's a, a broad theme that generally unites the habit literature, which is to some degree, our brain likes to automate behaviors. Because thinking is costly. Um, Our brain doesn't really like to think (laughs) too much. And evolutionarily speaking, it's almost always most useful to automate sequences of behaviors and to have them operate a little bit below our level of conscious awareness. So that because it's it's a very conservative strategy, it's a very um, energy conserving strategy, right? If I had to learn a new thing every single time, I mean, if you've, if you've taken up learning a new thing as an adult, you know, it's actually really difficult. Like, I think we've all forgotten as kids how hard it was to learn stuff because we didn't know anything else. So we have no contextual comparison. But as adults, when you try to learn something, like really learn something, I don't mean a variation on what you already do. Like if you already do Sudoku, like trying a different kind of Sudoku, but like, I mean, learning a new language or a new musical instrument or something that fundamentally is truly difficult and requires a lot of skill mastery it's really hard and effortful. And sometimes you can almost even feel your brain working. I think that's probably imagination, but sometimes it feels like you can feel mm. your brain working. And and so what generally unites the idea about habit formation is this concept of automaticity, that on, on some level, our brain is attempting to create shorthands and loops and patterns and pathways that are the minimally effortful ones that it can. And so some of those pathways are automatic just because they're useful, because they work. 
Other patterns are grooved because they're actively rewarding. And in some brains, some brains, I think, prefer more of these habits than others, more certain kinds of habits more than others. Um, some brains we know are a little bit more prone to seeking that reward than others. But in general, the concept is the same. There's some kind of reinforcement, even if it's just ease <laughs> and, and efficiency, to doing things repetitively and automatically. Right. And um, when you, uh, I guess one thing I probably should have asked before this, but, you know, um, I guess coaching and helping people through their journeys, that in itself being an individual thing. Um, I've heard you mention before at other places that you like to meet people where they are in that moment and not, you know, just blankly starting everybody at the same uh, same spot because, you know, everybody's journeys are different. Um, how do you... Um, when when you talk to someone, how do you determine uh, whether it's better to take more of a, uh, a hardcore kind of tough, you know, give them some tough love, that type of an approach, or to be very hand-holding, very compassionate? Because that can be tough because, you know, one could think that, okay, if this person, for example, is overweight, um, is pretty inexperienced in, in a lot of ways, then it's it's better to just start out very gentle not throw them into the you know the into deep water right away but at the same time a lot of these people may actually be benefiting a lot from a more hardcore kind of tough love type of approach because they are hardcore as a person uh, it might just not manifest in how they look or how athletic they are seemingly so um how do you how do you uh, like to individualize uh, this kind of a- approach I think it's interesting before I get there. I think it's interesting to think about how are we even defining coaching approaches, right? And I would make the argument that there can be multiple elements within a single coaching style. So for example, you can have a continuum of structuredness. I would argue that on some level as a coach, you should have some kind of structure rather than being completely open-ended, but some clients will appreciate more structure and some clients will appreciate more freedom. Um, other clients will appreciate more highly segmented instructions, like really, really, really tiny parts of things one at a time versus some clients will appreciate a more holistic approach. But I actually have found that very few clients truly benefit from a hardcore tough love approach, even if they say they want it, even if they ask for it, um, in general, a more compassionate approach is almost always on some level the best approach. And what changes is more the level of structure and challenge that you put into it. So, um, you know, if you have a someone like an athlete who loves a high level of challenge, they love to be pressured and pushed, that's something you can absolutely do, but the relationship of trust has to be there first. So uh, the, I've seen the graph and I forget where this comes from, but I always loved it. Um, if you imagine, on one axis of a graph is challenge, and the other axis is support. As challenge goes up, support has to go up. So you can't just start randomly like kicking people's asses all over the place. You have to put in the work of doing those relational skills, which includes compassion, before you can challenge. And once you have that groundwork in place, yeah, you can kick people's asses like right off the cliff sometimes. Um, but in general, I have found that very few people actually truly do benefit from a tough love approach, even if they ask for it. Because what's happened is a lot of them have internalized self-criticism that they think is 
the path. They're like, okay, if I'm just a hard ass to myself, then I'll, then stuff will get done. And generally I haven't really found that to be entirely true. Now, again, structure can be really helpful. Accountability can be really helpful. You know, something like, okay, uh, you're going to show up tomorrow morning at six o'clock in the morning and I will be waiting for you. So know that I am waiting for you. That's structure and accountability. But um, tough love uh, to me, at least how I think about it is something like, um, I don't know. It's like it's it. It seems so much like rewards and punishment, or conditional, conditional withholding of my affection and my appreciation. Uh, whereas I kind of go with this unconditional positive regard. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean anything goes. It doesn't mean that whatever you do is okay. But it does mean that there's. I kind of show up with this perspective of your fundamental worth as a person, and I'm probably not going to challenge and push you right at the beginning, no matter what, until we have that trust, that rapport, that. Um, intimacy is sort of a funny word to use, but like that, that personal connection, then I might push you. But yeah, I don't know. I just, the tough love approach I find very rarely works in, in reality. Now, like there's always that 1% client who just thrives on you screaming at them, but, and you figured that out eventually, like they're usually a psychopath or something like that. But, but, but ultimately most folks don't really do that well on that approach. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting to hear uh, your take because um, I, I just have a, one particular individual in mind, which I, I highly admire him, um, but uh, his approach is very much along the lines that it's when you're kind of having the, the tough love type of approach, that's in a way it's kind of in, it empowers your clients because it, it lets them know that you're treating them as champions uh, not as little kids. That that would be kind of his his verbiage, and um, you you're kind of uh, approaching it from the other end. That there's a time and a place for kind of having the that champions attitude. You know, input output. You know, you're a machine. We're doing what you're supposed to do, and there's no deviation, or you know, not necessarily no deviation, but we are going to approach you as you know I would some sort of a, an elite athlete from the get go. Um, and it would be interesting to kind of hear hear the two of you discuss this. Obviously, like you can't necessarily challenge it um, in its full value without having his take on it fully because I'm kind of just mm-hmm. interpreting it as I've heard it. Um, mm-hmm. Well, let me just add another piece to this as well. Like what I like and what you're saying is it's this – I think you used the word adult. Or, I mean for me, a huge piece is asking people to take responsibility. Like – now I am aware that such and such is happening. So I'm receiving the feedback from my coach. And now I take responsibility for doing something about it. It's, I, I think sometimes the, the hard-ass approach actually takes responsibility away from the client in a way because it's like, oh, I'm just going to yell at you and that will motivate you. And it's like, no, no, no. Like the client has to take responsibility. They have to show up and be like, you know what? I'm prepared to be a grown-ass person about this. We're going to have grown-up conversations about reality, about energy balance, about the laws of thermodynamics and that you can't have magical thinking. Um, but we'll do it like grownups. Because uh, I find a lot of tough love almost revolves around the parent-child kind of relationship. And that's not the kind of relationship I want. I want a collaborative peer-to-peer relationship. Now, I might have more knowledge. I might be further along the path. I might be the peer that is in charge of driving the bus on some level or another. Um, or maybe not driving the bus because the client's agenda drives the bus. But but I might be the navigator. Um so I definitely do believe in responsibility. I cannot care more than my client does. I have to care a little bit less than they do about meeting their goals. And so I'm always saying to my clients, like, let's talk like grownups. Because I think a lot of our conceptualizations around food and eating are very childlike. Like, oh, I was good, or I was bad, or I'm going to eat clean. Like, they're very literal and basic and, and crude. Uh, they're not the way the grownups think, which is sophistication and nuance and 
ideally. <laughs> so I, I definitely am with your uh, your colleague there on asking clients to own their shit. To be totally honest. Yeah, and do, and do you do you come across that where or, or is is that a frequent thing? Because uh, that that's something that I've seen frequently, and even I, you know, a few years I remember when I had my first. Um, just, just this random memory that just popped into my head when uh, it was must have been like five years ago when I had my first coach who first kind of guided me through uh, me getting down to single digit body fat levels. And um, I was literally treating that relationship as, you know, like a teenager would report to his dad or something. And mm -hmm. I remember having this thing where I had uh, I dropped the weight plate on my my big toe. So my feet were a little bit screwed up. And so I was writing to him like, hey, I can't, whatever, I can't do hit sessions because my feet are broken. And he was like, okay, well, try the pool or try the, you know, the, the ergonomic bike or something. And then I would just ride back once again, like, but no, no, I can't do that either. And he would re respond back to me. Oh, no, after some point, he actually stopped responding. And kind of that, <laughs> that was the moment when I realized like, holy shit, what, what was I doing? Like, this is my, <laughs> I, I am the one who wants to get, wants to get ripped here. Like, why am I waiting for his approval for what I want to do or what I don't want to do? It's, do I want to do the hit session? If yes, then I can fi find ways to do it. If, you know, if I don't want to do it, then whatever, I don't need his permission to do it. He is just the person who is guiding me through this. So is this something that you frequently see that people kind of, uh, mistreat the client-coach relationship and see it as a um, kind of almost as a way of giving up their own responsibility? Well, I would actually, I love that you brought this up because I, I do think that the coaching relationship evokes all kinds of interesting psychological baggage and from both ends, right? So you can have the client putting their stuff on the coach, whatever that is. So they might show up as the tantrumy toddler or the rebellious teenager or the needy baby or whatever. And the coach might show up as the dominating parent, as the withholding parent, as the power tripping parent, as um, the uh, overly caregiving parent, the helicopter parent, right? So this is why in level two, we really focus a lot on the coach's own inner psychological development, because if you're not careful, you can replicate a lot of dysfunctional relationship templates that you learned early on in life in your coaching and your clients, you know, and every client will evoke different things in you, right? Each coach has the kind of client that sort of spins their dials. I, there are certain kinds of clients that, that evoke certain things in me that don't evoke certain things in other coaches. And that's why it's a great idea to have a professional network. Cause there's sometimes there's certain kinds of clients where you're like, I am having none of this, <laughs> but there are other coaches who love that kind of client. So that's a great referral kind of partnership opportunity. But yeah, like you have to be, I mean, in any kind of coaching, teaching, guiding relationship, you have to be very aware of the psychodynamics that are unfolding and very aware of the patterns that you could be creating and replicating. And this also bears mention following ethical guidelines. Now in coaching, there are really not uh, professional ethical standards like there are for psychotherapists, like there are for counselors and social workers. Um, and that's kind of an unfortunate thing because it's helpful to have a set of codes and regulations to follow from that perspective where you can look at your ethical guidelines and say, okay, am I acting in the client's best interest, which is a, a standard piece of um, ethical regulation in, in many professions. Um, but it's, it's worth just thinking about like, as a coach, um, having your own practice of ethical self-review and in psychotherapy, of course, 
as a psychotherapist or counselor, you would be working under supervision. So you would always have a regular practice of going to someone and saying, here's what's happening with my clients, uh, you know, give me your feedback and thoughts. So as a coach, it's also in your interest to get coaching or have a mentor or even just a collaborator or another coach that you can go and talk to because these kinds of relationships are emotional and psychological minefields. So you have to be very, very developed in yourself and aware in yourself because clients will bring up stuff for you and they don't mean to, they're just showing up as themselves, but they will evoke things in you that can cause problems for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I guess uh, the way you broke this down, I guess this, this is almost um, a good reminder for everybody who, um, who sees online coaching and, and uh, being a, a fitness um, educator or content producer as kind of a, a way of just making an easy buck or something. You know, there's just so much going into this and uh, online coaching has become something that a lot of people over time have kind of turned into just uh, being kind of human spreadsheets who just spit a few numbers <laughs> on an Excel spreadsheet. Like, okay, here, here are your macros. I'm your online coach. Like, not really. You're just a walking, you know, you're, it's, 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 there, there is nothing truly valuable in that that someone couldn't just figure out for themselves from an online macro calculator and developing these deep, uh, meaningful relationships with your clients and truly invoking a change. That's something that is just so much different. And uh, thank you for breaking it down like that. Um, now, another thing I, I wanted to ask you about, um, just a week ago, I talked to Martin McDonald. I'm not sure uh, if you've heard of him. Um, but he he is uh, running a very successful uh, nutritional course, and uh, we were talking about this concept of low hanging fruits, and we kind of touched on this a little bit um, uh, with habit formation. But for example, I noticed for myself that when I do a few key things, um, such as keeping my kitchen clean, drinking a few glasses of water be be before each meal, um, and focusing on my meal and eating mindfully basically everything just improves quite dramatically. You know, I have an easier time eating in accordance with my body composition goals. Um, my digestion improves, my gut function improves. Everything is just better. Now, the messier my kitchen is, the more distracted I am. And if I don't drink water before my meals, everything just goes a little bit south. You know, I've done this for long enough that things are just are, are not going to blow up and everything's not going to get ruined all of a sudden everything is just getting a little bit worse. So um, for me, these are simple key habits that I have in place. And I would be curious that um, you as someone who has been in this game for a long time and uh, thinks a lot about habit formation, did you find any of these kind of simple key habits that seem to work well for a lot of people and that you try to instill in them? Yeah. I, and the, the phrase low hanging fruit is something we use at Precision Nutrition too. And I like to say, uh, what is the easiest, laziest, low hanging fruitiest thing you can come up with, which sort of blows people's minds because they're always used to looking for the hardest, most complicated thing, right? Um, the one that's been coming up so often with clients um, is, well, there's, there's two. Uh, one is the five minute action, which is just basically come up with something you can do today or immediately or as soon as possible that takes just a few minutes. So whatever you're chipping away at or whatever you're trying to do, is there some kind of five minute version that will help you vote in favor of moving in that direction? 
Um, and, and of course, five minutes can be as many minutes as you want, really. But the idea is to take action somehow, because one of the problems is that people just get stuck. It just seems overwhelming. There's too much. I don't know where to you know what to do. I could I don't feel like committing to a whole workout. No problem. Just do five minutes of something. So taking action is very very empowering. And so one of the simple things we have people do is just this five minute action or thirty second action or whatever. But just some kind of action. Um, and, and to make a practice of that, right? So whenever you feel overwhelmed, whenever you feel stuck, whenever you feel like, I don't know what to do, figure out something to do for five minutes. So that's a really great one. The other one, planning and prep. This is the low hanging fruit. And a lot of times this could be the five minute action because it doesn't, you don't need to plan a military operation a lot of time. Sometimes you just need to look at your calendar for the week and get a general sense of what's coming up. Sometimes you just need to throw your running shoes in the trunk of your car. Sometimes you just need to, I don't know, stick a few packages of protein powder in your suitcase. Like a lot of planning and prep is not super time intensive. Or, you know, uh, buy a bag of baby carrots at the grocery store so you have it on hand. Like just really, really simple things. But just that basic act of looking ahead and saying, what is coming up? What can I reasonably expect? Because almost none of us live lives of random chaos all of the time. (laughs) Um, What can I reasonably expect in my life that will come up? How can I have a plan A and a plan B at a very, you know, um, simple level? Um, And how can I just sort of think strategically about it and recognize that I'm empowered to take charge of that and I can actively affect the outcome. I could spend five minutes doing nothing other than thinking, oh, I'm going to dinner at so-and-so's house. Well, what is likely to happen? Well, uh, here's a series of probable choices and situations. Okay, can I come up with strategies to deal with that? Done. (laughs) It really doesn't take much more than that. So planning and prep, I would say, uh, combined with a five-minute action, Honestly, if, if you do only two things in your life, those will dramatically increase your chances of success at anything. Yeah, no, that, that was great. And um, it just uh, kind of something that I, I wanted to ask you in the beginning. And, and this is, I guess, a perfect segue into that. Um, kind of the five minute action reminded me of this thing that uh, I often heard about. I often heard being said about productivity that in any sort of undertaking, whether it's writing a book or going to the gym or, you know, whatever you're doing, the start and the beginning is always the hardest. And, um, you know, when just, just when I'm looking at all the things that you're doing in your work, it just, I might be wrong, but probably I'm not. It just strikes me that uh, you need to be an incredibly productive person to accomplish all of the things that you're doing in your day-to-day, uh, you know, life and job. And, um, you know, maybe just uh, in a general sense, like, I'm curious, like, how, how do you structure? Like, do you have any kind of core strategies and philosophies to, you know, stay as uh, productive and prolif- prolific in your work as you are? It's interesting you ask that because this is a question I've really been grappling with a lot recently. And I think if you ask almost any quote unquote productive person, they will tell you that they're not that productive. <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> feel that way. Um, uh-huh. For me, one of the biggest changes, uh, helpful changes was coming to terms with myself. Um, and this is, this is true. I mean, I talked before about our, how our eating uh, programs work and that they're reality-based. Um, but coming to terms with myself and how I need to work, what I require to be my best self was essential. So I realized I could not break up my time into a whole bunch of little tiny fragments. I can't do a bunch of random phone calls or meetings or or have these little micro interruptions all the time. I can't constantly be on chat or anything like that. I, I can't even really um, answer email all that often because for me, uninterrupted stretches of concentration time are what I need to, to do my best. As our interspersing 
periods of intellectual output with movement. So I might work for a couple of hours and then get outside for an hour and then work for a couple of hours and then do something else physical for an hour. So I need I need that rhythm. And I know that about myself. And, and I've come to terms with that over the years. And it's been a bit of a struggle because that is not the prevailing mode of working in Western culture at this point, um, yeah. especially if you have a knowledge worker kind of job. Uh, yeah. The idea is, oh, hey, sit down at your computer and grind some stuff out for eight or 10 hours a day. Well, first of all, I think that's impossible for a human to do. But um, in general, it, it definitely, definitely does not work for for me. So, so just kind of stepping back and looking at that reality and saying, this is what I need. It may not be what anyone else needs, um, but it's what I need was like really job number one. Um, job number two was, again, facing reality getting very real about distractions and what is sucking my time, what is sucking my energy, what is uh, taking my attention away and trying to eliminate as many of those things as possible, like getting extremely aggressive <laughs> about it. I call it ruthless clarity, getting very clear. What am I doing? Uh, what do I need? And what is taking away from that? And it's amazing how many things can take you away from useful and productive work, things you don't even realize, oh, even things that feel productive, like housework, right? Like, oh, you know, I got a few minutes, I'll just throw in a load of laundry. And then 20 minutes later, you're folding the socks. And you're like, ah, damn it, I just lost like a half an hour of work. Yeah. Um, so so some of them are tricky. Some of those uh, distractors can be tricky. They're not all like binge watching Netflix or, or you know, yeah. wasting time on Facebook. Like some of them can be like answering email. Well, that feels productive. Well, it's actually much lower on the productivity scale than and an hour of like really focused, intense um, reflection on something. So um, recognizing what your distractors are, but especially looking for those super sneaky distractors that look like they're being productive. Those I think are the worst and the trickiest. Oh, damn. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like you are familiar with Cal Newport's work. Oh, I love Cal Newport. Cal Newport <laughs> is my spirit animal. If I could be like him one day, I would die happy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. He, he, he's pretty amazing. And, you know, like... Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we could dissect this a lot more, but I think a really key takeaway, because um, I've heard similar things from, ironically, from a lot of fitness professionals that I look up to greatly and that are very productive and accomplish a lot and say similar things about how they need to, need these longer chunks of focus time. And I think it's almost the same as with nutrition that, you know, a lot of us are individual in many ways. Some of us react better to higher amounts of fat and lower carbs and vice versa. But there are some fundamental things. Like you said in the beginning, you know, my cells are probably not that different from yours. And before, you know, there are just these fundamental things that tend to work for most people that are lean, you know, and, and have a good physique. They tend to do some things similarly. And I guess the same thing can be said about people that are productive and if someone is not productive and is looking for ways to improve that, then first, you know, just reach for the low-hanging fruits. You know, are you super distracted? Are you jumping on Facebook every five minutes? If yes, then, you know, just start there and see what happens. If it doesn't work after two months, then, yeah, you know, maybe go back and check Facebook every five minutes. Maybe that was not the game changer for you. But first, let's start assuming that you're not the exception to the rule, right? <laughs> yeah, and in terms of productivity, I have also been thinking lately about how producing more is not necessarily the end game either, right? Like, so an analogy with exercise is something like, if I want to build muscle, I can't just go and work out all the time. I need to recover, right? Like it is the process of recovery that actually is what builds muscle or makes me fitter, makes me better, stronger. So 
I think in North American culture in particular, we're obsessed with productivity. We're obsessed with output, but you need to have input. Like I can't just spend, 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 spend out of my bank account without making some money to put in there. Um, and the same thing, I can't produce, produce, produce. I can't create without incubation. Um, it, it just doesn't work that way. So I think um, it's also easy to get caught up in like thinking that producing more is always better and not asking yourself, okay, what has to be going in to the cognitive or psychological or life bank account in order for me to be making those withdrawals. Uh, like I can't produce out of an empty fuel tank. I just, I'm mixing metaphors all over the place, but I can't produce out of nothing. You can't just output, output, output constantly. So if, if you're having trouble with your output, with your productivity, look at your input. Like, are you sleeping? Are you recovering? Are you engaging in, in reflection time? Are you engaging with, tr with other people in a truly collaborative way? Like when was the last real good conversation that you had with someone? That's a great question because that's, one place where ideas definitely come from, but you have to be doing either face-to-face -face or like this, you know, in some kind of real-time way. In general, it doesn't work to just kind of have one-off asynchronous chat communication with other people and expect to get anything out of it. Sometimes it happens, it's a happy accident, but it's actually a lot of the analog parts of life, the non-digital parts of life that generate true productivity. Um, I don't know if you know who Saul Orwell is. He's the guy who's yeah. made himself legendary with the cookie party. But he talks about how he just likes to go walking every day and he doesn't listen to podcasts. He just walks and he thinks and he reflects. I mean, you couldn't have a more basic analog technique than that for productivity. Like, you know, that's, that's human beings pretty much as soon as we had a conscious brain, that's what we were doing. So uh, a lot of, you know, people get all hung up and like, oh, I need this productivity tool. I need an app. No, you don't need an app. You probably need to go for a walk outside. You probably need to go back to pen and paper and the most analog, non-digital experiences possible. Oh, damn. That was so beautifully said. And uh, <laughs> no, no, seriously, that was, uh, yeah, I, I probably I should cut this at the beginning of the podcast as a mini snippet and just uh just one final question on this and then we're going to wrap it up because i want to be respectful of your time but you know you mentioned that you need these longer chunks of work time and that you need some physical uh, movement in between them oftentimes and so if you look at kind of the total kind of deep work output that you have over the course of a day like at what amount would you tally that up on average because you mentioned at the beginning that most productive people will tell you that they're not that productive yeah, I would say if I get four hours of really good concentration, really good focused concentration, I high five myself. Now I'm doing other hours of not like of adequate <laughs> concentration, but my magic time is in the morning. I'm a morning person. If I get up and I sit down and I don't check Facebook, I don't check email, I don't check chat or anything like that. If I work during that period and I get four hours of like really solid, amazing um, honed in communication or, or, or uh, productivity, I, I'm like, awesome. I feel great about that. And then I can work as many more other hours as I want. But at my peak, I'm only going to get four hours of really, really good stuff. And some days it's only going to be two hours of really, really good stuff. If what I'm doing is so cognitive demanding that it just burns through the fuel. So for people listening, I mean, the eight hour day where you expect to be super productive for eight hours, not going to happen. The human brain just doesn't work that way. I have a highly <laughs> productive brain. My brain has no problem making stuff, but it cannot run at top speed for more than a few hours a day. It just, it's just too costly. Bang on. All right. Yeah. So I hope everybody uh, listened to that carefully. So Christos Dixon, who is super productive, super successful, just said this. And I think that should be an important lesson for everybody listening. So thank you so much for sharing that. And um, thank you so much for all the golden nuggets that you dropped here. Um, super 
great insights and I think uh, my listeners will find this super valuable. Uh, very last question to you, what sort of uh, resources and uh, projects uh, would you like people uh, to check out and direct them to? Well, precisionnutrition.com is always a great place to start because there's so much free stuff there. You can just read until your eyeballs fall out of your head. You can download stuff for your clients if you're a fitness professional or for yourself. Um, that's a great place to start. Stumptuous.com, obviously. Um, and if you're interested in thinking about how to apply behavioral science to eating, food, body issues, um, I've put out a book recently called Why Me Want Eat. Uh, the subtitle is Fixing Your Food Fucked Upitude, and you can get that on Amazon. Um, but it's a workbook, and I've deliberately made, you know, this is my all analog philosophy. It's deliberately a print book. You cannot get it in digital because you're expected to write in it and draw on it and rip out pages if you want, crumple them up, stomp on it. It's up to you, <laughs> whatever you do with the physical product. Um, but yeah, so it's it takes behavioral neuroscience and kind of makes it very accessible. There's lots of curse words, obviously. Yeah. You know, I've dropped an F-bomb in the title, so that gives you a sense of it. And it's a bit silly, um, but it's a very accessible, easy read. And it takes you through a change process step by step. So if you read it from start to finish, you will go through a change process. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty proud of it. And I, I think it's really fun. And I love hearing from people who say, yeah, you know, I just I tried this and it was such a great application of the concepts. And I, w I was amazed at how effective I found it. So those are sort of the three the three places you can catch what I'm doing recently and, and the zeitgeist of it. And of course, you can always find me on Facebook as well. Perfect. Yeah, I should definitely. I will definitely get that book because I'm really interested in that topic, and I'm always curious how other people that I uh, admire in the field approach this. So yeah, thank you for sharing that, and uh, I invite my listeners too to check that out. So uh, thank you so much for being on it. This was an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you for having me. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode and liked what you heard. And if you did, then I think you definitely love our SSD training and nutritional course that we recently put out with Burger Fuggerly. This program not only contains a 12-week phasic training program that you can use to time efficiently and safely build the best body you can, but also gives you four plus hours of video lectures about managing your nutrition and lifestyle to not only look good, but feel and perform optimally. And besides this, you will also be getting some really awesome bonuses like Burger Fuggerly's MyoReps and Zero Carb ebook. So if this sounds interesting to you, then go ahead and check out sustainableselfdevelopment.com slash SSD program. And of course, to not miss out on future episodes like this, subscribe to the podcast and you'll be up to date on everything we'll be putting out. So thank you for hanging around up until now and see you next time.